Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. It's interesting to kind of watch and study how people respond to, to stress. Like when something uh, big is happening, how are they going to respond? Like if there's a big event or something that's coming up, are you going to stress out? Or are you kind of the person that's, that's just chill all the time? And it kind of depends on, on the difference of, of what, uh, what is going on and your personality and how big of a deal it is. Like if somebody, somebody said to you, hey, we're going to host Christmas for like 40 people at your house, some of you would be like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. Others of you would kind of freak out. Am I right? Yeah, because when you know there's a big thing that's happening, you're like, I got to do something about it. Some of you would be like, that'd be awesome because that would give me the reason to redo my kitchen. Like you would think of some reason. You'd figure it out. It's like, if I'm going to have to take part in a big thing, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get ready for it. If you were here last week, you know, we started a, a, a walk through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And for, for a while, we're going to take some time and just kind of go through the book of Acts. And we talked last week about how the book of Acts is actually volume two of what Luke wrote. Volume one is the gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote this to help us to know what Jesus did for us. And then when we get to the book of Acts, it's volume two, and it helps us to see what Jesus wants to do through us, how the Holy Spirit wants to work through us and the work that he wants to do in our lives. And so we talked about this last week. In fact, many of us, we stood and we prayed a prayer where we said, God, we want you to work volume two out in our lives. We want you to do something new in our lives. And that's why we called this series the next big thing. Because when Jesus left his disciples, he, he, he died and he rose again. We've talked about this. And then for 40 days after his resurrection, he's with his disciples and then he left them. We're going to read about that today. But he said to them, look, there's something more that's happening. I want to give to you the next big thing. In the history of the church, in the history of the world, in the history of humanity, in God's plan for redemption of people, he says, I'm about to do the next big thing. And as we read the book of Acts, we honestly believe that that same volume two lifestyle, that God wants to do something big in our lives as well, is something that we look for. And so how do we prepare ourselves? What do we have to do to get ready for the next big thing? Here's what Jesus said, Luke chapter 24, verse 49. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit today again between volume one, what Luke wrote at the end in Luke chapter 24, and then what he wrote at the beginning of volume two in Acts chapter one. Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus says this, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's saying, look, I'm gonna send to you the next big thing. He elaborates on this when we get to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, verse four, Jesus says, well, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in a couple of verses, he expands that, verse eight of Acts chapter one. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's what's really clear here. God wants to do something big. He wants to do something new. And I honestly believe that in the same way that he wanted to work that out in the lives of the disciples 2,000 years ago, he wants to work that out in your life as well. We, we saw that when we talked about this last week. So what do we have to do if we want to be ready for the next big thing? If we want to be prepared, if we want to be able to prepare ourselves for what God wants to do? Well, the best way for us to figure this out is to look at what the disciples did. Back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 15. 
When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. You get the feeling that they picked up that something significant was happening, that they didn't want to miss out on it. And they knew it was important for them to be getting ready for the next big thing. Today, that's what we're going to talk about. What is it that we need to do so that we are getting ready for the next big thing? In fact, both this week and next week, we're going to talk about this idea. We're going to look at some elements um, between Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, what the disciples did basically to prepare themselves for what God wanted to do, for how Jesus wanted to be their baptizer and pour out the Holy Spirit in their lives. So we're going to look at three things today, three things that we, we uh, need to keep in mind if we're going to be ready for the next big thing in our lives. So here's the first one. First thing that I encourage you to kind of keep in mind, number one is place. Number one is place. The place where you are in your life is critically important. We just read that passage of scripture in Luke chapter 24, where it says that Jesus was taken up into heaven. Not very descriptive there. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about how this played out. But when you go to Acts 1, you read more about what, what we refer to historically as the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says this, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's, that's quite a picture, isn't it? When you think about it, you're standing there chatting it up with Jesus, and all of a sudden, he goes up in the sky, and you're watching him. I mean, this is like Star Wars stuff, right? I mean, this is, this is crazy. He goes up in the sky. A cloud hides him from their sight. They're kind of just kind of trying to figure this whole thing out, just kind of watching to see what are we looking at. And all of a sudden, there's two men dressed in white standing there with them. These guys most likely are angels, right? And there's angels standing there, and they look at the disciples, and here's what they say. What are you looking at? Why'd they say that? Because the point is, he's gone, but he told you what to do. So don't just stand here. You need to get to the place where he told you to be. You need to be in the right place. Does anybody remember um, electronics that actually had antennas? Does anybody remember this? <laughs> like, anybody ever have a transistor radio? Do you remember transistor radios? That like, if you wanted to get the station just right, you kind of have to stand there like this. Do you remember that? TVs with antennas that you'd have to kind of wrap your hand in aluminum foil and hold on to it with the other one just so you could watch the news. Like, it's not quite like that anymore, but I remember the first cell phone I got. This was probably, it's got to be at least 15, 16 years ago. I went to this place called Big Prairie, which is officially in the middle of nowhere. It was the camp that we used to take our kids to when I was a kid's pastor. And I remember being there, and I had my first cell phone, and I wanted to call home because Rhonda was at home with the kids, and I was, I was there leading the kids from the church at kids camp. And I knew that the only place I could talk to her was if I stood real still between these two trees. <laughs> then I could talk to her from there. Because it's critical, sometimes you have to be in the right place if you want to get reception. That's not just true with an old cell phone and a transistor radio. I think that's spiritually true as well. That if we're not in the right place, we're not going to be able to receive what God wants to do in our lives. Does that make sense? And so there's times when we have to pay attention 
to what place we are in. Now, in some ways, that might be, that might be physical. It might be the geographical place. Like sometimes we may be in a place that's just not where God wants us to be in, in, a, in a particular setting or even, even in, a, in a part of the world where he's moving us to. But more likely, we're talking about a, a mental place, not just a physical geographical place, but about a mental place. What's, what's your state of mind? And ultimately, both those things are dependent on the spiritual place that you're in. Spiritually, where are you? What, what's the state of your heart? Are things right between you and God? Two ways that I think is, is good for us to think about this, especially when we think about what the disciples did, and we just read in Acts chapter one. One of the things is it's important for you to be in a place of obedience. Well, let's just call it a place of obedience. If you go back and look at what the disciples did, after Jesus ascends, they do what they were told to do. Acts chapter one, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So they were in one place and they knew that the best place for them to be was to be obedient to the place where Jesus told them to be. Now, if you think about it, that might not be the easiest place for them to be. Many of his disciples, many of his followers were actually from Galilee, which was quite a ways to the north. And Jerusalem was the city, if you remember, where Jesus was crucified, where if you just go back about 40 days, the disciples were hiding in a room with the doors locked because they were fearing for their lives. And Jesus says, go back to that place. Don't, don't go back to the easy place. Don't go back to the familiar place. Go back to that place because that's the place that I've called you to because that's the place where you'll be able to receive from me. If they, if they had gone back to the easy place, if they had gone back to the familiar place, they would have missed out on what he wanted to do. It was important that they were in the place of obedience. When I was a kid, probably elementary school, junior high years, I can remember my mom being in the kitchen, and on many occasions, she would say, Chad, can you go down in the basement and get? Like if she was cooking or doing something, she might just say, hey, can you run downstairs and get this for me? That's what moms have kids for, is to do their dirty work. And so I go down in the basement. Like we had a freezer down there. We had shelves down there and stuff. They store stuff. And we had a fruit cellar. Does anybody know what a fruit cellar is? I asked that before, and, and people were like nodding their head no in the last service. Fruit cell is like a, like a cave in your house. We had like, the, at least that's what you think when you're a kid. And my mom would go, hey, can you go down there and get such and such? And here's what she'd say. She'd say, it is in this spot. It looks like this. You will have to move that. You're going to have to look in this way, and it will be right there. If she had GPS coordinates, she would have nailed it. Like, I mean, she told me exactly where to go, which is very helpful when you go to get something except I wouldn't listen because she probably interrupted me from saving the world or something, right? She said, Chad, will you go down? Yes, okay, I'll go. And then you get down there and you just kind of look around a little bit. Mom, I can't find it. She'd yell back down where it was, what it looked like, how you'd find it. And I'd be like, I don't see it, Mom. You know, you'd pull that one. And then she'd kind of get to the point where she'd be like, do I have to come down there? Because if she came down, there was wrath coming with her, right? So what did I need to do? I needed to listen and pay attention because if I want things to go right, I need to obey what I've heard because I'm not going to find what I'm looking for unless I do. See, it was critical for the disciples to be in the right place. And it's critical for you if you want to receive what God has in store for you, whether it's geographically, whether it's mentally, but man, let's start with spiritually, that you be in the right place because God has something for you. He wants to work in your life, through your life. It might be a, a, 
a big change that he wants to bring, or it might just be he wants by his Holy Spirit to work through you in a small way. Either way, when he works through you, he wants to do that. It's a wonderful thing, but it won't happen unless you're in a place of obedience. See, blessing flows from obedience. And if you want his blessing in your life, man, who doesn't? I mean, I think so many of us, that's, that's what we're looking for is God's blessing. And we get troubled when we don't receive it. And maybe it's because we're in the wrong place. Blessing flows from the place of obedience. For, for, for quite a few people today, it's a very significant day because they're being baptized. And baptism is a step of obedience. It's saying, God, I know what your word says, and I'm going to be obedient to that. And I honestly believe this, that when you take that step of faith, you open up yourself for God's blessing to come even in a greater and in a brand new way in your life. So we're talking about a place of obedience. Let me tell you another way that I, I see this in this story. They weren't just in a place of obedience. I also think they were in a place of expectation. They were in a place, they set themselves up in a place where they said, God, I expect that you're going to do something in my life. You know, oftentimes the reason I think we, we don't see God is because we're not looking for him. And we just get busy in our lives and we walk right past divine appointments. We fail to see God's protection or his blessing or just little ways in which he's just kind of winking at you and saying, hey, I know you and I love you. And we miss that because we don't expect it. And I want to live my life in a way with my eyes open to see what he wants to do. As you read through this story, and we'll get through more of this next week, you'll find that for 10 days after Jesus' ascension until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the disciples found themselves in a place where they just said, God, we expect you to do something. I mean, honestly, that's the whole story of the book of Acts. As you read through, they're saying, God, we expect you to do something in our lives through your church. And with that sense of expectation, then he can work. But if you're not there waiting for him to do something, how can you expect to receive what he wants to do? You ever been to like a, I don't know, a conference or a convention or some kind of an event where, where they ask people to fill out info card and then they, 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 they trick you. They say, if you give us your information, we'll put it in a drawing, you will not win. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right? And so you, you fill out your information, you give it to them, and then they have a drawing and they give away, I don't know, a car, a motorcycle, a book, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, that you're, you're there for. And, and they have this rule sometimes that if they pull your name out, you have to be present to win. Have you ever heard that? Must be present to win. And if you're not there, you can't win. I'm always excited when they pull the name and it's not mine, they call it out and that person's not there. I'm excited that I have a chance because that loser wasn't there. That's the way, that's the way it affects me. All right, because you have to be present to win. If you want God's blessings in your life, how are you going to get them if you're not expecting them? If you're not actively, presently looking for him to do something in your life. So if you want to prepare yourself for the next big thing, start with this question. Are you in the right place? Physically, mentally, but ultimately spiritually. Right, is, there, is, there, is there an area of disobedience in your life that keeps you from being in the place where God wants you to be? Have you lost a sense of expectation that God might be able to work through you and use you this day? Because if you're in the right place, then you open yourself up to what he wants to do. Okay, so the first thing I hope you'll keep in mind as we talk about getting ready for the next big thing, that's place. Here's number two. The second thing, let's talk about people. Number two, let's talk about people. The second thing that I hope you'll keep in mind as we talk about the next big thing is people. 
So we go back to our story. Jesus ascends, angels show up, tells them, don't look here, go do what he told you to do. They go back to Jerusalem, and here's what happens. Verse 13, Acts chapter one. When they arrived, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. How fascinating that they kind of give you just the rundown of who was there. They say, look, it's important that you know who was there, because these are, these are major figures. They were major figures in the Gospel of Luke. They'll be important people as we go through the book of Acts. But even more, I think it's important to see that they were together. In fact, you'll see this at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. It's important that they were together. Because the people you're with has a direct effect on how you live your life. It's important for you to realize this. Now, now much of, of who you're with, you can't control. Have any of you wished you could have picked your family? <laughs> but you can't. And you can't necessarily pick the people that you work with. And you can't necessarily pick who your neighbors are. But you can choose this. You can choose how much influence they have in your life. You can choose how much control people have over you. Why does it matter? Because who you are with affects who you will be. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you see this over and over again. You see it in scripture when it says bad company corrupts good morals. Who you are with affects who you will be. Why is it so significant that the apostles stayed together? Well, for one thing, they didn't scatter. They didn't go back to the, the safe and familiar and, and, and comfortable places. Instead, they stayed together, and staying together helped them stay together. And they were looking for a certain kind of people. Who should you be with? You should be with people who share your values. It's important for you to be with people who share your values, people who believe the same way you do, people who live the same way you do. Now, look, I'm not calling you to withdrawal or isolationism. That's a word, of, that's a prophetic word, brother. Isolationism. I'm not calling you to just kind of push everybody else aside. We thought about starting a commune here out back. We got some acreage. And I love you on Sunday, but I don't necessarily want to see you first thing Monday morning. Nothing personal. All right? We're not starting a commune. That's not what I'm talking about. You live in the world that you live in, but it's important that you surround yourself with people who share the same values you do. Does that make sense? I was talking with some friends yesterday. And um, they live kind of out in the country a little bit, and they found out over the course of events in the last month or so that their well water is contaminated. And so they, they've got to do something about this. So until they can do something about this, because they don't want that to influence them, they said they're living like they're on a missions trip. Right? They're drinking bottled water, and they're being careful with what they do, because they know that there's something that if they're not careful about it, it's going to contaminate them, and it's going to affect them. And the reality is we live in a, in a world and a society that in many ways does not line up with biblical principles, right? Have you ever heard the phrase living right side up in an upside down world? You ever heard that? Well, we live that way, right? So we live by a different set of values, kingdom values that Jesus taught to us. And in doing that, there's times when we have to be careful that we surround ourselves with people who share our same values. It doesn't mean that we... We aren't the light of the world. It doesn't mean we're not the salt of the earth. It doesn't mean that we push others aside. We just know this, that if I'm going to hold on to these truths, then it's helpful for me to be around other people who would all hold on to those same truths. So we need around us people who share your values. And I would also encourage you, you need people who share your hope. 
people who share the same hope that you have. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Look, we need each other more and more in the difficult times, in the tough times. As we look forward to the time when Jesus will come again, we find hope by being with other people who share our hope. There's something powerful in that. And the disciples, I think, were able to stay together for those 10 days, those 10 critical days, because they stayed together and encouraged each other. In the last two days, I've had the, in the last two days, I've had the painful privilege to be a part of two very significant funerals for people who have had a, a long-reaching and deep impact on this church. And those are tough times to walk through and, and to be with the family. But both days, I walked away from those funerals and I said, man, I love the church. I love watching people come and stand with each other and be with each other in their darkest times and help each other out. And I watch these connections and relationships with people that I didn't even know they knew each other. And then they're there supporting each other and helping each other. There is something powerful about if you want to receive God's blessing in your life, you not only need to be in the right place, but it sure helps if you're with the right people, people who share your values, people who share your hope. And so we've looked at two things here so far. If you're going to get ready for the next big thing, it's good for you to look at the place that you're in. It's good for you to look at the people in your life. And here's the third element that I hope you'll consider as you think about getting ready for the next big thing. Let's talk about praise. Number three, let's talk about praise. What do, you, what do you mean praise, Chad? Why, why talk about this? Luke chapter 24, if you go back to the story of what the disciples did after Jesus' ascension, watch this, Luke 24, verse 52, because you'll see something very important. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. How important was this? That in this time, in this really significant time, when the disciples could have done all kinds of other things, the thing that they knew they needed to do was stay in a place where they were focused on praising God. If that was important for them, do you think it's important for us? So why is it important? Well, it says in verse 52 that they worshiped him, that as they recognized the risen Christ, as they saw Jesus, the change that came in their life caused them to worship him. Now, here's something significant. You, you might argue with this a little bit, but I just think this is a truth. You will worship something. No matter who you are, in some way in your life, you will worship something. There will be something that's going to get your attention. There will be something that is going to get your affection. There will be something, whether you recognize it or not, that you're going to give your devotion to. You will worship something. For some of us, what we worship is, is something material. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's money. It's a possession. It's a position. It's something in our world, a physical thing that we worship. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't set it up in my living room and bow down to that thing. No, but everything in your life says it's the most important thing in your life. And that means that's what you worship. For some of us, we worship something that's material. For others of us, we worship something that's relational. There's a person or there's a relationship that is what drives you. 
Your decisions are made based on that. It is the most important thing in your life to the point that it's, it's, it's how you define your values. It's how you define what you do. It becomes that person, he or she becomes what you worship. For some of us, it's material. For some of us, it's relational. For some of us, what we worship is, is personal. We worship ourselves. That the focus of our lives is our selfishness. It's our satisfaction. It's our own pleasure. It's you, you, you name it. But at the heart of what we worship, the heart of the most important thing in our world, it's us. It's personal. And so you can worship something material or, or something relational or something personal. You're better off if you choose to worship something eternal. And that's God. Because everything that's material in every relationship and, and um, spoiler alert, including you, it's all going to fall apart. But if you worship God, if you make him the focus of your life, and he's worthy of it, right? He's your creator. Scripture says that he knit you together in your mother's womb, that he planned your life, that he has a hope and a purpose for your life. If you will worship him, the one who's greater than anything, you will find something eternal to count on and to worship. Why does this even matter? Because I believe this, what you worship determines who you will be. What you worship, the thing that you put out in front of you as the most important thing, what you worship determines who you will be. I remember when our kids were little, and I think, I think all three of them did it, they, they, would, they would watch something on TV, and then when that show was done, whatever they watched, then that's what they wanted to do. If the person in the show got a motorcycle, they wanted to pretend they had a motorcycle. If the person in the show was a superhero, they'd run and find Rhonda and see if she'd make him a cape, right? Because whatever they watched, that's what they wanted to do. Because they gave all their attention to that thing, then it, it, it directed their life in a way to say, I want to do that. I want to be that. What you worship determines who you will be. And so when we worship God, it allows us to be more in his image, to be more like him, to move our life forward in a way that will have eternal strength and eternal hope. That's why worshiping him, praising him really matters. In fact, when we look at it in our lives, praise should be the natural response to a supernatural God. Our praise of God, when we think about who he is, when we look at him, praise should be the natural response to a supernatural God. But so many times there's other things that, that come in that try to distract us that when, when um, there's this vacuum in our lives, there's no shortage of things that try to rush in to fill our time and our affection and our attention. And so if we don't deliberately choose to praise him, there'll be plenty of other things that come in. So it's interesting that it says that the disciples were constantly praising God in the temple, which causes us to ask the question, how do we praise him? Like we talk about it, but practically, how, how does it get done? I want to... I kind of throw four things your way as we talk about this real quick. And I've made them very personal, especially like if you're, if you're taking notes or if you're trying to remember these things, that it applies right to me. It applies right to you. If you want to praise God, and it says here that they were praising God, here's one of the ways. We need to be focused that we're praising God with my mouth. I need to be focused that I'm praising God with my mouth. And in so many ways, that's, that's how we think. When, when someone says praise or worship, oftentimes we think of that 90 minutes on Sunday that we come together in church. Some of you are like, 90 minutes? Is that all? It seems like he goes on for hours and hours and hours. But it's the songs that we sing. 
But not just, not just on a Sunday. It's, it's the songs that we sing in our life. It's the words that we speak, not just the words that we speak to God or about God, but I even think there should be a tone in how we speak to others, in our speech, in our conversation, that people know that God is the one who is our priority, that we're focused on him. Now, you don't do that by ending every sentence with praise God, praise God. That's not how it happens. Sometimes that just becomes kind of, I don't know, not, not real, not genuine. But it means that in the words we say about God, in the words that we say about others, people can see that he is the focus of our lives. We're praising God with our mouths. It's an interesting study. You might want to, if you've got a Bible app or Bible software, just get online and, and search in scripture words like lips or mouth or tongue. Look at how much scripture says about our words, especially in the book of Proverbs, the book of James. In fact, James says something really interesting. He says that the, the tongue is like the rudder of a large ship, that a large ship has a rudder that, that is just a small part of that ship, but it steers it the direction it will go. And he likens that to our tongue, to our words. Here's why, because the lips steer the life. The things that you say have a direct effect on how you live your life. Have you found that to be true? That the lips steer the life. If everything you're saying is always negative, it's hard to have a good day. It's everything that you're saying is always critical. It's hard for you to show grace to other people. Your lips steer your life, which is why scripture says so clearly that our, our mouth should be an instrument of praise. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. What kind of words are coming out of your mouth? Are they words that prepare you and others around you for the things that God wants to do in your life? So one of the ways that I need to praise God is with my mouth. Here's another one, and I think it's, it's, it's really critical. It actually goes down a whole other level. It's important that I'm praising God with my heart. It's important that I'm praising God with my heart. Because I've known people who could talk the talk and not walk the walk. There's this um, kind of terrifying passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 1, where, where Paul begins to kind of chronicle the downward spiral of humanity. And he lists all the, the sins that have separated people from God. And because of that, why you and I, why humanity is subject to God's punishment because of what we've done against God. And, and if you read it, it's really kind of a, a fascinating commentary, even on modern day times. But, but look at where it starts. The downward spiral of humanity, moral decline begins. Romans chapter one, verse 21 for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see what he said here? He, he says that the decline of humanity started when people stopped thanking God. When people stopped glorifying God and when they began to worship things instead of him. Understand this. This is true in society. And I've seen it to be true in my life. Moral decline starts when praise stops. Moral decline starts when praise stops. 
Because when I stop praising God, when I stop allowing him to be the focus of my life, what happens is then, and we just talked about this, it creates that vacuum, right? And into that vacuum, there's all kinds of things that want to move right in there and fill my life in ways that aren't healthy and that aren't right. But if I have begun with praise, then that, that, that protects me, that helps me, that works in my life. Watch this passage, Psalm, 90, or excuse me, Psalm 36, verse 1. Tell me if this sounds like a life of praise. David writes, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Does that sound like a life of praise to you? Does it? Does it? Is, is anyone here? <laughs> I, just, I was just a little nervous there for a minute. That was a dream. No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like a life of praise. And what's interesting is David kind of maps this out. He kind of looks at the, the decline of sinfulness. And then he makes this sudden transition. Like he doesn't go back and try to explain it. He doesn't go back and try to say, this is why it's like this. It's like all of a sudden, almost in a reactionary way, watch what he says next. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. This is fascinating to me because what David could have done is he could have gone back and said, look at how wicked they are. Look at how bad they are. This is why it's like this. Instead, what he does is he just begins to praise God because he knows that if he lets the, the things that are against God fill himself too much, he'll open up himself to those things. At some point, he knows that the best thing that he can do in a world that's difficult is to praise God. Here's why. Because praise protects my heart. It keeps me from moral decline. It keeps me from frustration. It helps me in times of temptation. That in those moments when my heart is jeopardized, when the state of my soul can be compromised, my best response is to begin with praise. Does that make sense? Yes. If you have a computer, you know that you've probably been encouraged to have some kind of software that, that's like, like virus protection or that you've got some kind of firewall set up so that it's something nefarious wants to get in. It's something that stops it before it gets there. You've heard of that, right? Yes. Praise is like a firewall for the soul. And it protects your heart. So that before something can get in that can be devious and destructive, how critical it is that we begin with praise. Because praise protects my heart. Here's why. Because what I find is this, that when I stop praising, I start criticizing. Like that's, that's just kind of my, my default mode. That when I take my eyes off of God, I, I start being too critical of others. When we were in Bible college, the, the president at Central Bible College at the time was Dr. Maurice Lednicki. We would have chapel services um, every day in, as a part of, the, part of the education process. And oftentimes, I probably in four years heard him at least 100 times, stand up before the chapel, and this is what he'd say. He says, when you come in this room, you will either worship or you'll be critical of those who do. Isn't that powerful? Because it's so true. 
At some point, you, you have a choice to make. And it affects our lives in a powerful way. So it's important that I'm praising God with my mouth, that I'm praising God with my heart. Let's go, let's go another one. It's important that I'm praising God with my mind. And I'm praising God with my mind in the way that I think. When I come up against challenges, when I come up against tough circumstances, when I come up against fearful things, that I'm praising God with my mind. Why? Psalm 97 verse 9 for you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. What does that passage tell us? Is there anything greater than God? Yes or no? No. There's nothing greater than God. So if that's the case, I have to remember that in my mind because I will come up against things that seem pretty big, challenges that seem pretty strong. And they will overwhelm me and maybe even overcome me if I'm not cautious and careful. But here's why this is so important. I got thinking about this. Why was it important for the disciples to praise? In part, if you remember, 40 days before, they're, they're hiding because they're fearing for their life. They don't know what's coming next. We talked last week. You want to talk about being uncomfortable and being uncertain. That was the spot they were in. So they had a choice to do. They could either sit around and fret and fear, or they could begin to praise God. And what's powerful is this. Praise changes fear to faith. And when you have fear and you begin to praise God and you begin to put that in his hands, when you begin to listen to music that's going to encourage you, when you begin to have conversation and speak about his goodness, when you begin to read his word in those difficult times and let those truths seek in, Praise changes your fear to faith. Anybody ever had that happen? Here's why. Because when I praise, my blessings become bigger than my challenges. When I praise God, my blessings become bigger than my challenges. I've had more people accuse me of causing them harm in their life since, since Good Friday. If you were here on Good Friday, preached a sermon, and I talked about this, this nasty, gnarly-looking spider that I found on my porch that week. And I've had multiple people walk up to me and go, I found a spider at my house, and it's your fault. I've not been to your house. I didn't do that. But it's been interesting to hear people talk about that because there's not too many people that like spiders. And in the story, I mentioned that that spider was there. It was, it was this gross, nasty-looking thing. And Rhonda had this decorative little rock-looking thing over here. So I looked at the spider, I looked at the rock, and I squished it. Yeah, praise God, right? And I was in a hurry, so I left him there. Because I kind of wanted to freak my family out. Kind of wanted to be reminded how awesome I was. And then a couple days later, I just went over to him and just kind of knocked him right off the porch. He was a creepy-looking thing, nasty-looking thing, a fearful-looking thing. But he didn't stand a chance next to that rock my big old foot took care of him. It's interesting how many times we get so scared by things that actually can easily be, um, be dealt with. Don't let the spiders in your life become greater than the rock on which your faith stands. Because he has the power to take care of that. When I praise, I think about the eternal God instead of earthly circumstances. There's a big difference there. And look, for some of you, you're up against something right now. I don't know what it is, a doctor's report, your finances, a, a big thing. There's something that's there in your life. And if you think about it long enough, it'll begin to scare you and freak you out and all that stuff. 
At some point, you have to take that thought captive, Scripture says, and fill it instead with praise because you've got a God who's bigger than that little spider, right? And so you put your trust and your confidence in him. I, it's important that I praise him with my mouth in the words that I speak, that I expect him to do something in my life, that I praise him in my heart because when I do that, it sets up this firewall that protects me from the things that want to destroy me. It's important that I praise him with my mind, that I don't let anxiety come in, but instead I push that fear aside and I trade it for faith. And let's just make a big umbrella statement. It's important that I'm praising God with my life with everything that I have, with all that I am, that I praise him with my life. We just read that passage from Psalm 97 that says he's great above all other gods. Listen to how he goes on. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. What the psalmist is saying there is that with every part of our lives, we're to praise him. Our lives, our existence are to be focused on giving him glory. And what's so incredible is sometimes that sounds like, man, that sounds kind of boring. Am I just supposed to walk around singing hymns? No, it goes so much deeper than that. Because if I live every moment of my life in my family, in the workplace, with my friends, in everything that I do, if I'm focused on knowing that ultimately I want to give him praise, it gives life purpose, it gives it joy, it gives it adventure, it makes it a pretty fun time. If you'll trust him in that way. Think about what it was like for those disciples. Acts chapter 1, Luke chapter 24. They have no certainty in their life. They've watched this kind of crazy roller coaster ride unfold. And Jesus says to them, I want you to wait. I want you to trust me. Because I, I've got this big thing that I want to do in your life. Some of you are in a place where you're waiting for the next big thing. You're saying, God, I want you to work in my life. Then I would take a good look at the place that you're in. Is it a place of obedience? Is it a place of expectation? Take a good look at the people who are around you. Are they people who share your values and your hope? And then I begin to praise him. I begin to worship him. Do you recognize that you're going to worship something in your life? So are you worshiping something that's eternal? And with that, are the words that are coming out of your mouth representing the fact that you've been changed by the risen Christ? Are the things that you're setting your heart on things that move your life forward? And are you letting praise kind of be a firewall that keeps the bad things out? Are you allowing praise to fill your mind so that anxiety can't take up big real estate there? And with our lives, can we worship him? And as we do, make ourselves ready for what he wants to do in our lives. So I'm asking you to do this. Would you stand with me right now, whether you're here in Auditorium 1, Auditorium 2, even if you're watching on a screen somewhere, I'd love it if you'd stand with us. And if you're comfortable, would you just lift your hands to the Lord? Because how good would it be for us right now just to praise him? And you're in a room full of people who are going to do this same thing. So can I challenge you to begin to praise him with your mouth? There's something powerful about your words. Just begin to thank him. Begin to praise him. Praise him for his goodness and who he is. That you're righteous and you're holy. God, that you're greater than any other God. Lord, that there's none like you. Praise him for what he's done in your life. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your grace. Begin to thank him for who he is, that he's our healer, that he's our provider that he's our peace, that he's our refuge, that he's the one who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. Right now, would you just begin to praise him with your mouth? Would you lift him up? Would you thank him for who he is? Let's give him glory here today. We praise you, God. Lord, we magnify your name. 
God, we praise you. some of us, we need to take a step of praise. That we need to exchange words from our mouths that have not been healthy or, or holy and exchange them with praise to God. For some of us, we've opened up our hearts to things that are not good for us. And today we need to fill that with words of praise. For some of us, we're looking at something so big that it's frightened us and it's freaked us out 
And instead, it's time for us to step on the rock that does not change and show that problem that our God is bigger. For some of us, it's just time to open up ourselves and to praise Him. And so as we continue to sing, would you do that? If that's you, you know that God's speaking to your heart, would you just lift your hands to Him? Would you just lift your voice to Him? God, we praise you. Lord, we thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. to do great things in our lives. Lord, we go into this week expecting that by your spirit, by your presence at work in and through us, God, we're going to see you at work. You're going to lead us in living the adventure that you've called us to live. Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. God, would you send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace praise you, God, and thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.